0: Pile them up. I suppose it's no good telling you again that we're innocent. No good. It's not for myself, I'm asking. Other men with families have had to die for this sort of thing. It's too bad, but it's justice. Justice? What do you care about justice? You don't even care whether you've got the right
1: men or not. All you know is you've lost something and somebody's got to be punished. I tell you, there's nobody to look out for, and they're in a strange place. Can't you understand that, you you? Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin.
0: I'm David Daw.
1: And this week, we are continuing the 1943 nominees with the Oxbow incident. It is bow, right? Not bow?
0: I think so, yeah.
1: Okay. I don't know that they ever actually say it.
0: They do very briefly when they find the three guys, but that's the only time it's mentioned in the whole movie.
1: And at the end of last week's episode, we definitely were a bit nervous because of the nooses that were hanging from a tree in the poster. And I feel like our anxiety was well founded, though probably incorrectly placed
0: yeah it turns out this movie comes out with a strong anti-hanging people stance which it's wild that given our cinematic history here that's in question
1: <laughs> yeah yeah specifically anti-lynching Mm-hmm. i don't know that it's necessarily against hanging people generally but certainly against mobs of people lynching other people which is a good thing I would actually say that this is a pretty good movie.
0: I would. Ag- it's a bummer. I would say it's a bummer. And I would say the thing I texted you like 20 minutes into watching this is, I mean, this as a compliment, this is a Twilight Zone episode. Like this is just straight up a morality play Twilight Zone episode about the dangers of mob justice and like what it is to be in a society that is ruled by laws. The downside for it is it's one of those final season of Twilight Zone episodes that's like a little too long and doesn't actually quite have a story to fill its full running time.
1: That's my major criticism of this movie is it's 75 minutes long, so it ain't long to begin with. Mm -hmm. And the first 25 minutes could happen in five minutes.
0: This would be a fantastic 44-minute, hour-long TV episode of The Twilight Zone. Absolutely. There's easily that much good stuff in here. The pure plot is two guys ride into a town and hear very quickly that there's sort of a cattle wrestling problem and then hear that a local rancher has gotten shot and killed. And almost immediately, they get caught up in this mob that's going to go right out and try and find the guys that did it and kill them. And they immediately go, boy, that sounds like a terrible fucking idea. But if I'm the person that says out loud, that sounds like a terrible fucking idea, they're going to hang me.
1: Right, because they just rolled up. They're strangers in the town.
0: You then spend this time getting introduced to all these figures in the town, a like, army major who wants to relive his past glory in the army.
1: David, there's something actually really important here that has to be pointed out and which I think is pretty brave given the period in American history that this movie came out. Mm-hmm. He's a Confederate major. He is wearing a Confederate uniform with a hat that says CSA on it.
0: And like, this is very clearly post-war, so he's just dressing back up in his Confederate uniform. Yeah, it's
1: 1885 in Nevada. He's not even in the South.
0: Yeah, he's just reliving his glory days of having fought for the Confederacy and is trying to push his son who he thinks of as being a coward for, you know, reading books and not dressing up in a Confederate uniform and being a traitor to the United States.
1: And wearing nice clothes. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a feeling that the dad is trying to prove his son's masculinity and I would even argue straightness.
0: What's great is that the major becomes kind of a more central character in the third act. But they probably total have maybe 5-10 minutes of screen time because there's a lot of people and a lot of points of view. There's also the town judge that's like, we don't, you know, hang people in mob justice. There are courts, but the sheriff is out of town and has deputized this random guy. And the deputy is really big into doing this because this gets to be a thing he did. You know, he was in charge of catching this guy that killed the local rancher. There's like a dozen or so, I would say, sort of named characters in the mob that you really get to know that all have sort of specific points of view about what's happening here.
1: And the judge very specifically says, one, you can't form a posse because you are a deputized sheriff Mm -hmm. and the deputy can't deputize a posse. And two, if you're going to go do this anyway, you have to bring whoever you find back because they're going to have to stand trial. You can't just ride out and hang these people.
0: Yeah. There's this really interesting sequence where they almost all get talked down, where somebody goes like, listen, the sheriff's going to be back tomorrow. There's no reason to think this isn't solvable by the sheriff. Everybody come inside, drinks are on me. It'll be fine. And then this one guy who just is... I don't even get, I don't quite know what that guy's deal is. The guy who just, he just loves hanging. He people. just really loves hanging people and loves it. The major both talk him out of it. Really, and I think this is a really interesting choice, managed to talk everybody back into it by, you're going to be big damn heroes. We need to do this. We're going to be the ones that save everything. Like the sheriff isn't going to do it. It's got to be us. We're going to be the ones that restore law and order and fix everything. And everybody goes like, hell yeah, and rides out. Well, not everybody, but the mob in general rides out with a hell yeah, with our protagonists and more sympathetic characters going, "Uh, so we're fucking doing this. Okay, great.
1: Uh, There's also an important character to boosting the morale to do this, who is Ma Greer, who is played by Jane Darwell in a complete about face from her character in Grapes of Wrath. She was the mom in Grapes of Wrath, so she was very sympathetic and very quiet and very long-suffering. And in this, she's playing a not-so-subtle butch lesbian who is just down to be a cowboy and go and hang people. Mm-hmm. And she rides up, and then they're like, well, Ma's here! We gotta go now! <laughs>
0: yeah. Like, I do love how much it is that she is Ma to the entire town. Everybody becomes a teenage boy trying to impress their mother. Yes. When she's around.
1: And she is very, very butch, which I also thought was really interesting. There's a lot of very subtle stuff in this movie that I don't think is us reading it from 2020. I mean, from 2020, it's not subtle at all. (laughs) But this is a pretty... Not even progressive, but I would say radical movie for 1943.
0: I don't know how much we're reading in the sexuality stuff, but I do absolutely think this is a movie about toxic masculinity made in 1943.
1: Oh, I'm not even saying sexuality. Maybe she's a lesbian. Maybe she's not. She's clearly a spinster. She just doesn't have any kids. But there's definitely some hardcore gender stuff at work here, because you've got the major son who is very fancily dressed in this windowpane check three-piece suit, whereas everybody else is looking like a cowboy. And then you've got a woman who rides up who has short hair, it's under a cowboy hat, she's dressed in men's clothing, and that's the point where all of the men are like, well, now we've got to go, because they can't be out Masculined by Ma.
0: <laughs> yeah. There's also, in this same through line of protecting masculinity, this what I initially thought was kind of weird segment where they end up finding a stagecoach and in it finding Rose, who is like the one woman who was in town, who left town and was in some way romantically involved with one of our two leads, though that's kind of left ambiguous. And she has a new rich husband from San Francisco, and she just then disappears, and you're like, well, what was that about? Except what it's about very clearly is, oh, they're doing this in the name of a woman who kind of could give a shit about them. (laughs) She goes off and has her life and does not really give a crap about any of the men anymore, but the men are all inspired by her and go and do stuff in her name, It's not in her name in the sense of she wants them to do it in any way. It's this thing they wanted to do. And they're like, also, there's a pretty lady and she'll like me for doing the thing.
1: Right, right. Well, I mean, if you want to impress the most feminine woman, you have to be the most masculine man.
0: Right. And like, really, they're just a bunch of bumbling fucks. They end up shooting (laughs) the stagecoach guard and he shoots back.
1: Did they shoot first? I thought the stagecoach guard thought that they were a bunch of, what's the word I'm looking for, people who hold up stagecoaches, highwaymen, and then shoots at one of them. And then he's like, no, it's fine, I'm totally okay, because pretty lady is here.
0: And then the new husband comes in and does the madman, I feel sorry for you, well, I don't think about you at all thing to one of our leads.
1: <laughs> and yes,
0: he gets all pissed. And they then ride out and find these three men sleeping near what they assume are the cattle that have been stolen from the murdered rancher. And then we're into the... Really, it's more than the middle third. It's a very long segment of the movie is interrogating these guys trying to figure out what to do with them, trying to talk the mob down from hanging all three of them. But, like, from moment one, there's this sense of dread of, like, no, it's inevitable. They're fucked.
1: And there are a few things that happen that could work as evidence either way for this. The three guys are basically a white guy who is late 20s early 30s has just moved to a nearby town with his wife and two kids and he has purchased some cattle from Kincaid who is the rancher who was recently shot and Kincaid did not want to sell his cattle it's not clear as to why he decided in the end to do it but he does sell them but he doesn't have a bill of sale at the time that they're sold and says he'll mail it to them so they have these cattle from the recently shot rancher with no bill of sale and then there's an older white man who is the father-grandfather, not at all related, but sort of uncle. It's not clear. Uh, I guess ranch hand to the younger white guy. And then Mexican guy who is at first totally silent and pretends like he can't speak English. And then it turns out he can actually speak nine languages. But they find Kincaid's gun on the Mexican guy who says that he found it in the road. And the white guy says, no, we really did find it there. So all of that is kind of against them. And then also the old guy has some level of dementia and all of this threatening stuff going on ends up making him give a false confession. Yeah. On the other side of that, there is a letter that the young white guy wants to write to his family because he's never going to get to say goodbye, which he writes and then gives to is it it's Davies right is the old guy in the posse who goes along to sort of try to be the voice of reason and then fails
0: Yeah he's the bar owner <laughs> in town right Yeah
1: mm-hmm. Yeah he reads the letter and he thinks that the letter actually would be at the very least character evidence that they didn't do this but then the rancher is like Why are you reading my letter? How dare you? That's not for you. Don't let anybody else read it, which was so frustrating to me. But I get it.
0: Right. When you eventually hear the letter, the letter is such a, oh, this is what's going to end the movie, isn't it? Thing. One of the things that makes this a Twilight Zone episode is it's weirdly predictable. Yes. Everything that happens is like, oh, of course, fucking of course. Yes, of course, of course. But in a really satisfying way, the moment this letter is brought up, you're like, oh, it all ends with them reading the letter. And the letter is just heartbreakingly fucking terrible. Like, just lays it all out. But he does keep going, that's for my family. You don't get to read that. That's not for you. Right. And Davies keeps going like, God, if only somebody else would read this, they would get it. But nobody else really wants to. They finally, after some sort of more circumstantial stuff happens, I think the last thing is they find the shot rancher Kincaid's gun on the guy. And then the major is just like, let's just put it to a vote. And the vast, vast majority of them vote to hang everybody with Davies, who has the letter and our two leads that rolled into town in what I found to be a surprisingly effective moment, because that so much of their plot up till now is like, we've just got to go along with this. Like, it's going to be so bad for us right? that they just still go like, nah, fuck it. I'm going to walk across that line and say these people don't deserve to die. Was really affecting to me, but also the major's son and a couple other guys, like seven total out of what seems to be about fifty people. Go, don't hang them, and they try and stall. Can't stall enough. They stall just enough because this is a Twilight Zone episode, and of course that after they are killed, the sheriff immediately rides up afterwards and asks, like, "Hey, we heard gunshots. What the hell's going on?" And the posse is like, we did it. We killed those guys that killed Kincaid. And the sheriff goes, well, first of all, Kincaid's not dead. Second of all, I just arrested the guys that shot him. So...
1: (laughs) So what the fuck?
0: Yeah. He grabs the badge off of the deputized guy and everybody rides back into town. (laughs) The major's son tells him off so effectively that the major walks into his study and shoots himself. Which, good.
1: says nothing just walks into his house locks the door so his son can't get in and then walks into another room and you hear a gunshot off screen yeah and yeah good and
0: then everybody else goes back into the bar and drinks in silence until one of our two leads reads the letter the letter's basic point is I feel sorry for all the guys in this posse because this is a terrible day for me, obviously, but it's going to stop being terrible for me in a couple hours when I'm dead. And they're going to have to live the entire rest of their life knowing what they did. Yep. (laughs) It's way better written than that and really affecting. And the shot of it is so smart because the eyes of Gil, our lead reading it, are hidden by the brim of the hat of art or other lead so you can't really see how reading the letter is affecting him that ends up really working in that way of like you know horror movies are better when you don't see the monster you can imagine what he is feeling better than any actor could express what he's feeling and everybody is like shit we we murdered a guy, so that's our day. That's how our day went.
1: And they raised five hundred dollars to give to the widow and her children, which is a I mean, it's a good amount of money at the time. It's apparently equal to fourteen thousand two hundred dollars today. But still is not going to bring back their dad.
0: Yeah, I will be honest, I don't remember that happening in the movie. It says it's there on the Wikipedia page.
1: I actually had to rewind it. It said very offhandedly right before Gil tries to get Art to read the letter. And then Art says, you know, I can't read. Which, by the way, I thought that was actually a really nice way of setting up a reason to have the letter read aloud. Yeah. Because I knew that we were going to have to get there, and I figure, you know, it's 1943, they're going to do one of those voiceover things that they always do. Yeah. And instead it's Henry Fonda, who, my God, no one has ever acted more sympathetically. <laughs> yeah. Reading the letter. And I, I really have a lot of complicated feelings about Henry Fonda the man, because apparently he was a horrible narcissist, terrible father, a terrible husband etc. But the fact that this was one of his favorite movies he ever made, and he has so little part in it. I mean, he's ostensibly the lead, but it's really an ensemble piece. And there are long stretches of time where he basically disappears, or he has one line and everybody else has one line too.
0: It's one of those things where you can really tell this is based on a novel. Because They're the main characters because they were the point of view characters in the novel, you know? Right. But in this, the camera is the point of view. So they sort of weirdly disappear for long stretches where they are acting as audience surrogate observers, but you also just have an audience. So the other reason I did not catch that $500 thing is that to me, the thing that's so affecting in that last scene is Peter Fonda getting up on his horse and the other guy going like, well, where are we going? And Pierre Fonda just going, he said he's got a family, didn't he? He said they don't have anybody to take care of him, didn't he? And then just rides off. And you're like, fuck.
1: Well, the part also where he, he mentions the $500 is when you've got that great camera pan of every one of the posse members sitting at the bar, dead silent, just long-faced, staring at their beer glass. Yeah. And that's so much more important Because you're really seeing these people who 20 minutes before were hooting and hollering and so excited about how they were bringing justice to their fellow townsmen looking absolutely dejected and with very good reason and damn they should. And that's just so much more important than we raised 500 bucks for the mom and and wife and the kids.
0: It feels like such a weird afterthought because in a way it is, right? Like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry we killed your husband, here's some cash.
1: And I get it, like, the West was a hard place to survive anyway, but still, they just moved to this town. They've got young kids. That's rough.
0: Yeah. I don't know, it's really good.
1: Yeah, it is really good. The first 25 minutes could definitely be tightened up, but that's really my only criticism of it.
0: I would honestly rather cut some stuff out of the middle third. I would rather cut a little bit of the time where they end up hemming and hawing and trying to find more circumstantial evidence to hang the guys with. Because I'm a sucker for that act one, here are all the characters thing. Everybody gets their little two or three minute introductory scene where like, who's this guy? What's his deal? What are we doing here?
1: bothered by that I felt like setting up the situation where Kincaid has been shot felt a little bit 30s 40s movie where we don't necessarily trust the audience to grasp this if we don't really really lay it out for them yeah introducing every character I think was important and also did the Twilight Zone thing of setting a mood where the people in In the story, we're in very, very high spirits, and we as the audience are now instilled with dread. And that's such- I love that technique. Yeah. I know that Black Mirror has probably killed it for all time. (laughs) Or maybe not. I mean, there is a new Twilight Zone series that just came out with the second season, so maybe everybody loves that. I
0: think everybody has decided the Twilight Zone was about twists. It was a lot of the time. A lot of episodes are sort of like the equivalent of a one-page blackout sketch. And that's why they worked so well as half hours, is that you'd hit the same beat a couple of times and then go, but actually, he's in hell. Oh, shit. Mm -hmm. And then you're done. But the really, really good Twilight Zone episodes were all these little Crucible-esque morality plays. And I mean that both as in the Crucible and they are all crucibles that the characters go through. This is one of those, given maybe a little too much time to breathe, but the thing that is so important about that, you're right, is this immediate setting of tone. You know the Monsters Are Due on Maple Street is going to go wrong like two minutes in, because otherwise, why are you watching this?
1: Right, because if it's just totally lovely, there's no story.
0: (laughs) This does that so well. They ride into town and just immediately the bartender basically doesn't accuse them of being cattle wrestlers, but goes, just so you know, nobody in town who could be the cattle wrestlers has shown up except for you. And they go like, what did you just fucking say? And he goes, not saying you did it, just saying that's the kind of town this is. And that's where everybody's at right now. Right. And... You just immediately have this sense of how is this going to go wrong? And a little bit the problem with it is it's then an hour before something goes wrong, really? Like that the hanging happens about 10 minutes before the end of the film. And there is just a really long stretch of oh, are they going to do it? Is it going to happen? Is it all going to go wrong? And it does a really good job, I think, of filling that time, but it's just not quite enough story for the container it's in. It just has to stretch for time a little too much. If it weren't for Casablanca, this would be like a strong favorite for best- film of this year certainly so far and it has that same Casablanca thing of it feels like a weird miracle this is as good as it is it feels like some guys just sort of got together and went like yeah this is a western bunch of guys go out and and think they're gonna get justice done and then they don't let's grab some people go out film this in some valley in central california and be done with it and put it out and then come back and look at the dailies and go like oh shit this is really good, actually.'"
1: I definitely think William Wellman, who is the director, did an excellent job here. The way that it is staged, the way that you frequently have people who are sort of on one side or the other, and it's very clear who are your kind of good guys and who are your bad guys, even though that a lot of times you have your good guys are quiet and your bad guys are like, woo, let's go hang somebody. And also noticeably putting the major outside of all of those characters i feel like this movie was a very good indictment of jim crow without making it obviously about lynching black men because the guy who was really into lynching is the guy who is literally in a confederate uniform And the moral of the whole movie is lynching is wrong.
0: Right, and the, like, one black actor in the film is playing a man of God that the people of the town constantly look down on and shit on and make fun of, who is the only person with absolute unquestioned moral clarity throughout the entire film. Everybody else kind of has at least a moment of getting along to go along... Even Davies, in opening that letter, is betraying the confidence of a doomed, innocent man. He's doing it for the right reasons, and like thinks so, and did not intend to offend the guy, but did. Sparks, who is- the town is making fun of him when they say, do you want to go along and give them their last rites? But that's why he goes along. He
1: really wants to be there, because- he knows what's happening. He sees the writing on the wall here. Yeah. He is only able to fight it in so much as voting with the people who want to spare the rancher and the ranch hands, but he does it in a very non violent way. Mm-hmm. There's a shot when they meet up with the sheriff, and you realize that you have about a dozen named speaking role characters but this posse is about 25 people large Mm -hmm. and when you've got seven people i think is the number that end up voting to spare them against all of these other bloodthirsty hyped up armed, ready to go people, what are you gonna do? Yeah. It's really well directed. The performances are great. And Wellman actually directed Wings and A Star is Born. And I think if there's one thing that is consistent across his work that we've seen is that he's great at getting good performances out of actors.
0: Yes. But I also think one, there are a lot of showy shots in this that I think I've concentrated on maybe a little too much. The cinematography in that last scene in the bar is great. The cinematography in The Morning, where they actually hang them, is fantastic. But I think the day-to-day work of, you've got this posse of 25 guys, the vast majority of them look pretty interchangeable. And yet, I am never confused by who is speaking or what is happening. I'm never confused by all these interchangeable white guys, is so difficult. Mm -hmm. And we've watched so many movies that have completely failed at that.
1: Oh, absolutely. And
0: this movie would completely fall apart if I did not have absolute clarity about, oh, right, this is the guy that has this nuanced view on the morality of what's happening right now. And that's the guy that thinks this thing.
1: I mean, again, I think that's really down to directing because- He's making sure that every actor has something that they have latched onto in that character to really define them, other than just their lines. But it's always rooted in the text. It's not like, yeah, just have a weird quirk that you do. (laughs) Yeah. It's really good. The cinematography also, I think, is excellent. And it's the same cinematographer who did How Green Was My Valley, which was a garbage movie but had some really (laughs) sweeping cinematography in it that just felt so out of place in that film And which really becomes of a piece in this.
0: Yeah. The problem with that movie is it decided it was the story of a town and then did a really good job of shooting the story of a town. And then it turns out that's a really fucking boring movie unless there are people in the town that you care about.
1: Yeah, it's actually the story of a family (laughs) and their family story is really boring. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So as far as rating this film... Are we ready for that? Yeah,
0: I'm at like an eight.
1: Yeah, I think an eight is solid. I mean, and really, again, my only criticisms are the editing, but mostly the editing is quite good. It's just those 25 minutes at the beginning for me.
0: I mean, it's just pacing. It's honestly my criticism of this movie is it's slightly too early to be a Playhouse 90 style thing, right? Mm-hmm. There is no container in the entertainment industry yet that's quite what this movie should be, which is an hour-long, hour-and-a-half-long Western TV show morality play. In about 10 years, because of things like this, that's going to be all that television is for a decade. Right. <laughs> It's a little too short to really be a movie and not quite enough story to even be that short of a movie. It's not Casablanca, but watch this movie.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think so.
0: It's a good way to spend 75 minutes.
1: Yeah. And again, it's short. So, you know. Yeah. And this episode is going to be too.
0: I mean, (laughs) there's this weird thing of like, we could go scene by scene and moment by moment because there are so many small character moments. This is a movie that lives and dies by little details, by the way the like judge's housekeeper dismisses them at the door, but then leaves the door open for them to sort of walk into this world they don't really belong in. And you're like, well, that's not really core to this story in any way, but it's still good filmmaking and good storytelling. Yeah. We could spend an hour going through all of those. But it also feels like that weirdly just takes apart this movie. Just watch this movie.
1: Yeah, and then we would spoil it for you. And also, us relaying it to you is not going to be anywhere near as interesting as actually watching the film. Yeah. So, for next week.
0: For next week, we are watching The More the Merrier, which. Do you remember, like, in the early 2000s when memes were all clip art based? Yes. That, like, everything looked like a chick tract this poster looks like somebody in 2002 made it out of a bunch of like weird disparate pieces to go like, haha, isn't this weird? And not like an actual movie poster.
1: <laughs> yeah, it does. Like the woman in a two piece bathing suit with the speech bubble that says home is where you hang your guests.
0: And then two guys just hanging off of a coat rack. And yeah,
1: yeah, it's, Eh. Who knows what this is about? But Jean Arthur is in it. So, you know, she's cute. and We like her.
0: Yeah, could be worse. It's apparently a comedy. And those... No, we don't have a great history with those. I don't know why I was saying that. Like, that's going to make it okay. No. I think my argument was going to be that there's a floor. (laughs) You know, it can only be so bad. But then I realized, no, that's not true. Because there could be (laughs) Blackface.
1: that's true god i
0: hope there isn't i see no reason to think there will be but no the argument that well it can't be much worse than a three it's just going to be a light comedy is like remember all the light comedies where just for some reason the entire middle act is like wouldn't it be funny if i put some shoe shine on my face
1: yeah that that is actually really true uh but we do have a pretty good record with gene arthur comedies specifically yeah which does mean that actually there is a floor and we haven't gotten anywhere near it so that in and of itself is a little intimidating
0: (laughs) oh god and we have an ernst Lubitsch film this year oh god yeah heaven can wait
1: oh boy well, it's not for a few more weeks, so. Yeah. So tune in next week to see if this will be a light comedy that is at worst a three, or if there's blackface.
0: And until then.
1: This was a hell of a movie.
0: Yeah, this was a movie.
1: Goodbye.
0: <laughs> Bye, everybody. Where are we going? He said he wanted his wife to get this letter, didn't he? Said there was nobody to look after the kids, didn't he?